Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God, and with fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is Community. I am Tom Brown, and your host today, Aaron Brownback. Welcome to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I am Aaron Brownback, filling in for Tom Brown, and we have got a great show today. Later on in the show, we'll be talking to Mike Adams, who's an author of books such as Welcome to the Ivory Tower of Babel and Feminists Say the Darndest Things. He's got some great pro-family messaging out there, and we'll be talking with him about a recent article he's written about the gender confusion issue. But first, we have a guest, Mark Anthony, who is a national radio show host um, who spent 15 years in the political arena and now is the founder and host of The Patriot and the Preacher Show, a show which discusses both faith and politics. And he is the co-host. Ben Kinchlow from The 700 Club is his, is his preacher. And Mark, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Erin. It's good to be here. So, Mark, I'm super interested in your show. You talk about two very difficult topics, things that are hard to talk about in society, and you talk about them at the same time. Right. Which yeah. makes them even more difficult. Yeah. it's uh, Those are the two things people say never to combine, right? So we, I decided to do that. Uh, because it was needed. So tell us about how you made that decision. Well, you know, after the 2012 election, um, I was dismayed to learn that 30 million Christians just didn't vote at all. Okay, so 2012, President Obama was running against Mitt Romney. Right. And so 30 million didn't vote. And then I also found out that 15 million voted for the former president. And um, I'm a student of history. I love our history, the founding of this nation. And I thought... How is it that Christians um, in this country, uh, how could they have a disconnect between their faith and the founding of this nation? And I thought, well, if they don't understand it, maybe I should do something to help them make that connection. Okay, so the founding of the country and and Christians voting Mm -hmm. for President Obama, you felt like the found that the foundations of the country were deteriorating because of that. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I felt like they're, you know, obviously Christians say that they follow their faith and and that they understand that God has a role in every part of their life. And I felt like and, and still do to some extent, although that changed in 2016, that there had to be a disconnect between their faith and their understanding who our founders were and what guided them. Because I know, and we talk about it all the show on the show all the time, is that without their faith, they could have never accomplished what they did. Okay, so the founders, yeah. one of the things that you have talked about is how family uh, was one of the foundational pieces right. to America. Right. And so did you see that as part of what was disintegrating as people were voting for President Obama at the time? Right. Because, you know, basically, you know, now we can talk, you know, he's not around anymore, so we can talk about it a little bit okay. more. So, you know, basically the things that he was for in his first term and the things that he did in his second term certainly were not in alignment with somebody's Christian faith. When you talk about partial birth abortions or the way that he interacted with Israel, um, gun control, and really the way that, you know, our history became over time through him and his administration whitewashed, if you will, about what we really stood for. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. I've seen over the last 
over the last eight years, particularly this rapid deconstruction of the family in our mm-hmm. nation. And um, I've I've heard a lot of people say, this happened so fast. Right. I, I can't believe how fast the family has fa- fallen apart. Marriage and gender and mm-hmm. the life issue. Now, many people don't realize that's been going on for decades, that right. there's been this agenda going on. But certainly... During the last administration, it rapidly deteriorated. So we're going to come back and talk about that just a little bit more. You're listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Erin Brownback, filling in for Tom Brown, and we will be right back. Welcome back. This is Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Erin Brownback filling in for Tom Brown, and we are talking with Mark Anthony, the founder and host of the radio show, The Patriot and the Preacher. Mark, you have had some fabulous guests on your show. So some of my favorite, you've interviewed the current president several times. I have. You've interviewed uh, Ben Carson, Mm -hmm. Franklin Graham, Ann Coulter. Tell us who your favorites have been. Uh, you know, the, in the beginning, my first big guest was M- Michael Reagan. So that was a big thrill for me uh, because Ronald Reagan was a hero of mine. Mm. I grew up, you know, while he was president. So I can tell you that that was probably the most nervous I've ever been mm-hmm. until it was time for President Trump to come on. And then that and then I was really nervous when we had him on. <laughs> Um, I have had the chance to interview people like that and really get to know them in a different way because, you know, on radio, you can, and I do this, I give them a lot of time, more than you normally see um, somebody given on TV, let's say. So they usually get twice as much time. I get to talk to them, get them, get to, get them to answer questions they don't normally uh, answer, and it's a way for them to be more comfortable with the audience. And I think that, you know, it was great. You know, another guest that I have on all the time is Pastor Greg Glory, who I really consider a friend mm-hmm. um, and somebody that Harvest, I'm in contact Harvest Crusade. Harvest Crusade, right, which is coming here to it Phoenix is coming in to June. Phoenix. Yeah. Absolutely. Everyone yeah. should go. Yeah, it's going to be great. I we, Last year he did it in Texas at Dallas Cowboys Stadium. And, and he, he packed, packed it, it. didn't he? He packed it. He did. Um, and as a Cowboys fan, it was a big thrill for me to be walking <laughs> on that field. I, uh, you know, I, all of those guests have um, really helped the show, given it um, a lot of visibility. But um, I would say that out of all the guests, uh, having the president on changed our show for, you know, for the good. Absolutely. It, it doubled our ratings and it stayed that way ever since. Wow. Yeah. And you you have like a million listeners or something? A million listeners. Or, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. So I've heard that you have um, gotten the vice president to agree to come on your show. Is that yes, right, Mike yes. Pence? My, yeah, the vice president has agreed to come on the show. We uh, we had him scheduled about a week, what, two weeks ago, and then he had to reschedule. But uh, it takes persistence as in anything else I'm in sure. life. It I'm does. Sure. So we're in contact. We're about to set that date. He's in Korea right now, and when he gets back, we're going to be able to uh, confirm a date with him. So I, you know, we talk here about the family issues right. and that's what I work on. And so something I'm so interested in right now is Mike Pence has received a lot of flack for saying that he 
does not meet one-on-one with mm-hmm. women who are not his wife. He doesn't have a work dinner with a female colleague. Tell us, you know, tell us just a little bit more about that. Why do you think there's so much pushback on him on this issue? Um, well, I think because there are the things that are that should be important to us, you know, uh, protecting your marriage, um, your integrity, the way um, your actions, how they look to others, especially when you're in a leadership position like that. Um, it's become not only not admired, but that's not even cool anymore to be doing that. Um, and I actually have met him once and I prayed with him on election night and I was really impressed with the fact that his wife was always by his side. So the stories that were out there about how he keeps that as part of, you know, how he operates as a leader, I'm not surprised. And I'm also not surprised that he got attacked for it. Um, because you know, the way things are now, Aaron, you know, marriages aren't valued anymore. Relationships aren't valued. People discard them immediately. Um, and I think that, you know, he's following what Billy Graham's had as a policy. Right, Franklin, a lot of other people. Yeah, Franklin Graham has that as a policy. I know Greg Laurie does. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, you know, you and I talked about this off the air. It's important that on the flip side that he doesn't uh, that, that that his policy is not uh, doesn't bring women to a disadvantage that work for him. Right. But at the same time, I think that I was the, the amount of scorn that he received for the very fact that he won't have dinner with anybody besides his wife alone and that he won't go to a function that's serving alcohol without his wife. Interesting. I hadn't heard that part. Yeah. And that makes sense as well, though. Yeah. But so, you know, in a, one of my Ph.D. classes, I had somebody who was studying um, the gay rights movement right. and they were they were um, an advocate of, mm-hmm. of this movement. And they said, you know, we never really wanted marriage. Mm-hmm. We just thought that marriage was sacred ground. And if we could take it, we could get what we wanted to be accepted Right. You know, publicly accepted. And that goes along with what you're saying about, like, you know, if they don't value marriage, mm-hmm. if that's not sacred to people, then people might look at what Vice President Pence is doing. And, and you know, it, it kind of flies in the face of how they they feel about that issue. Well, it's, yeah, it, it seems foreign. I, I don't know how to say this any other way. When we talk about international relations, we'll talk about terrorism. They speak a different language. When somebody doesn't value what you value, mm-hmm. what your behavior looks really foreign to them, and it looks ridiculous, right? So to, to about half the country, let's just say we can generalize, the, the, the half of the country that voted for Hillary Clinton in general so, sees what Mike Pence does protecting his marriage, standing up for his marriage, protecting his wife, using his wife as his, you know, closest advisor and prayer partner, that looks strange to most of the country. It really does. Yeah. Which is sad, by the way. And it and it's a it's certainly a commentary on where we are as a nation because there was a time when that would be applauded. The, that was certainly yeah. the normal. Right. Now okay, so you said something though that I think is really important. You said you don't think that women should be in a position where they feel penalized for being women or that they feel like somehow less than or sidelined. Sure. Yeah. So tell us about that. Like, I know as a woman, I really value being cherished for my femininity. So mm-hmm. I, part of that is protection. And part of that is being lifted up. Like, 
you know, you are valued as a woman. What do you think Mike Pence or, or other men who are listening could do to put women in positions so that they are are not sidelined in, in their work life? You know, is this, are there, could they meet by Skype or, you know, yeah. tell us what, you know, what kinds of things you think men should be doing or sure. considering? You know, yeah, meet by Skype or, you know, every, almost every office has a conference room that's kind of a fish fishbowl so you can meet in there. Okay. So that there's no worried, you know, worries about what's going on. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, it's not that it's impossible. It's just in this day, it, the way the climate, this the way that things are right now, they're more concerned about lawsuits than anything else. And I understand that because I worked in high tech for 20 years. And so executives have to worry about that. But I know a lot of great executives that make sure that the women that are on their executive staff or director level it's either Skype meetings or it's conference calls so that they have the same amount of access, right? Right. And that makes sense. Now, look, obviously, it's obviously women can move up in the world. Kellyanne Conway is the first woman to ever run a successful presidential right. campaign. She had unfettered access to President Trump and Vice President Pence, and nothing happened, right? Because there was a mutual respect there. I right. think that uh, – and so obviously Mr. Uh, the president learned how to work that, right? Right. So, right. If yeah. you're just tuning in, you're listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. This is Aaron Brownback filling in for Tom Brown, and we are talking with Mark Anthony, the founder and host of The Patriot and the Preacher Show, and we are talking about gender issues and really, you know, masculinity and femininity, and we've been talking a little bit about sort of – why feminists might have some legitimate concerns about um, men and women not meeting together in the work world and, and what could be done to uplift women and acknowledge what, what part of what feminists are saying is, you know, really something that women are legitimately concerned about. I know for myself, I had worked at a church for years where all of the men that I worked with became pastors. Now, women didn't become pastors in this church, and becoming a pastor meant that they got a $10,000 tax break. But women were not ordained as pastors. And I, I talked with the head of the church um, in my exit interview and said, hey, I, um, I think you really need to plan into your budget ways to allow women to earn as much as men are equivalently earning. Um, and... You know, I think the same is true in in our political administration. A lot of women have felt sort of sidelined. But like you said, Kellyanne Conway has sort of broken this glass ceiling. What do you make? I had heard Rachel Maddow talk about how, you know, she Kellyanne Conway was the first female um, uh, campaign manager, presidential campaign manager. And then she became the first female to win. No, she... No, I'm sorry. First to win. Well, she kept saying she was the first Republican, like as though Republicans have just never had, you know, females right. in positions of influence. And now here we are in an administration where there's a lot more women in influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Where are you? How are you seeing that yeah, play I'm, out? Yeah. I mean, you know, his deputy national security advisor is a woman. He's got Kellyanne Conway. His U.N. ambassador is a woman. He's he's put women in some very powerful and influential positions. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Um, and he did it on, per- you know, he did that on purpose. But, you know, he is the kind of person that looks for the talent, not at the gender. And that's what he did. 
he put Nikki Haley in the best position she could ever be in. I love the fact that she's there. It does. Yeah, I'm really impressed and I'm excited yeah. to see that happening. Okay, so Mark, I just want to ask you one final question. Mm-hmm. We just have two minutes left and I just want to hear just a little bit about your family because I always like to find out from our guests what their family's like and how that led them to doing what they're doing now. Hmm. Well, I am the oldest of eight kids and uh, I was very close with my family, but... Like many families, there happens to be one sibling that is gay, and my brother that's three years younger than me is gay, and I, uh, my listeners know this, so it's not like I'm saying anything new here. There, that It has caused a lot of stress in my family and a lot of actually anxiety uh, because when the Supreme Court decision came down, I was extremely vocal that the court sh- should not have redefined marriage. It wasn't their place to do it. Um, and so... It certainly isolated me from the rest of the clan, unfortunately. That's a big deal. And I know a lot of people have experienced personal pushback Mm -hmm. and personal suffering because of standing up for the goodness of God's design for marriage, for the family. And you've experienced that in your family. I've experienced that. You have too. You know what it's like when you stand up. But it's important that no matter who you're going to offend, you got to stand up for what the truth it is. It absolutely yeah. is important, and we encourage everybody listening to do the same. This is Aaron Brownback, and you are listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. Mark Anthony, thanks so much for being with us. This is Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Aaron Brownback filling in for Tom Brown. And I'm really excited about this next guest we have today. We have Mike Adams with us, who is a fabulous author. He's written Welcome to the Ivory Tower of Babel and Feminists Say the Darndest Things. And he's recently written the book Letters to a Young Progressive. He's a professor. He's a writer for townhall.com, and he is the host of Rightly Offended. Mike, it's great to have you on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. So you and I, like all close friends, are friends on Facebook. That's where our friendship really has started. And um, the other day I saw this fantastic article that you had written on gender and on gender confusion, and I reposted it, and people just went wild about it. They loved it. And, um, you know, I talk about the family issues, and I like to have people on the show who are out there messaging the goodness of God's design for the family in some way. So when I read this article and I saw the response to it, I thought, I've got to have Mike on. So, Mike, tell us a little bit more about about this particular article, My Philosophy of Mental Illness, and what it was all about. Well, what really inspired it, it goes way way back. I I am just concerned about this issue of transmania, and I've been concerned. I like that transmania. Yeah, I've been concerned about it for over 10 years, way back in 2006. I wrote this article called Diversity and Perversity at My Little University. And it (laughs) it was ridiculing a very irresponsible film that had been sponsored by the Women's Center on our campus and co-sponsored by, by my department. It was called Transgeneration. If you, if you know anything about that film, 
it has college students who are getting sex changes. And I realized when I saw some of the film that we actually had kids who weren't old enough to drink legally yet. They weren't 21, and they were being encouraged to have sex changes, you know, gender reassignment surgery. And so when it came time to sponsor this film, uh, to co-sponsor it, we actually had a vote in the department meeting. I actually spoke up and said, I refuse uh, to endorse this in any way. If the department endorses it, please put except for Mike Adams. And thankfully, one other faculty member actually spoke up. And, you know, I, I just understood that at that time it was clearly classified as a mental disorder, g- gender identity disorder. And the idea that we would actually applaud and celebrate people doing things that would actually physically damage them based upon a delusion for the rest of their lives. Right. I thought it was absolutely immoral. And it's really interesting to see how the culture has changed over the course of uh, 10 or 11 years. I mean, way back then, that was just an aberration. You couldn't believe that they were actually doing it. And interestingly, uh, when I wrote the article, uh, there was actually a radical uh, group up near Chapel Hill called the Gender Mutiny Collective. Uh, it was this anarchist, uh, you know, transgendered activist group that actually was offended by the article that I wrote and actually called for an investigation into my views. And they wrote the chancellor of the university, and believe it or not, they actually acquiesced and actually did an investigation and interviewed students to find out if I was uh, transmitting uh, uh, transphobic values in the classroom. Wow. And uh, interestingly, you know, that was a time a decade ago when the only people who were taking the movement seriously were just a few academics in the social sciences and humanities. And boy, have things changed. Yeah, look where they've come since then. Right. And, exactly. you know... When I when I was reading this article, I thought we, um, you know, when somebody, when a girl, let's say I've had, you know, friends and, and college roommates and just different women in my life who have thought of themselves differently than they physically are. So, for instance, they've been anorexic. You know, biologically, they weigh 120 pounds, but psychologically, they think they weigh 300 pounds. And we all we all know that we treat the mind in those situations, right? We don't give them a lap band. We don't say, yes, right. you should starve yourself. But we say this is a psychological issue. And, and so we treat the psyche. So why is that not happening now with these gender confusion issues? Well, it's just a, a part of a larger worldview. Uh, if, if you think about it for a moment, uh, you know, it's really astounding to, to, to take a look at the issue of abortion, first of all. What, what has to happen in order for us to make abortion legal in this country? Well, I think it's really best summarized by a concurring opinion in 1992, uh, which was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where three Republican-appointed justices wrote this concurrence uh, where they essentially said that at the heart of liberty uh, is the ability, I'm paraphrasing here, but the ability to to define for oneself the meaning of life and the meaning of existence and the meaning of the universe. That's really crazy cosmic stuff, but at the heart of it, what is it really trying to say? Well, it's trying to say that some individuals have the right to define other individuals out of existence in order to pursue their own uh, individual liberty interests. Specifically, a woman has a right to define her unborn child out of existence. Once you accept this idea that Things don't have essences, that, that somehow uh, there is no objective truth and that we can literally define people out of existence. Um, what's to say that we can't 
grant ourselves the ability to declare ourselves to be any entity that we choose. I mean, think about it. This really is, at the heart of it, a worldview issue. It's an issue of postmodernism and a denial of objective truth and the idea that we have essences. It seems like, um, consistently, when I look at sort of the sexual left and when I look at the breakdown of the family, all of the issues seem to come back to, I want to be God in my own life. Right. Right. And that that when you're talking about this gender issue, it's same thing. I want to be God. I was created biologically to be a man, but I've decided, no, I want to be a woman and I I should be able to be God in my life. So you give us four four different um, views, um, four pieces in this article. You've got treatment and tolerance and acceptance and mandatory acceptance. Tell us a little bit about those. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we started at this point where we were treating people. I mean, that was the way it was forever. Yeah, that right. That we recognized, yeah, you know, if you think that you're something you aren't, then that is actually a disorder defined. That is a delusion defined. I mean, if, if you think that you're a poached egg, of course, we understand that you've got a problem. And instead of, you know, making you a poached egg, we need to come along and treat your feelings about being a poached egg. Uh, so it begins with treatment, and I mentioned in the article that that is the compassionate thing to do, is to treat people who have delusions and not to encourage them. But what do we do? We moved away from that to the idea of tolerance. And, you know, tolerance is, is really interesting. People define tolerance wrongly in our society all the time. They believe that tolerance is just sort of accepting something they approve of. I mean, no, no it's not. Uh, tolerance presupposes a moral judgment. Tolerance is with, when we say, well, we recognize that something is wrong, but we're just going to let it go. Right, and you're putting up went, with anything. Yeah, well, we went through that phase really quickly, and then it came to the view of acceptance. And I think really that reaching that, that third stage that I talked about in the article, really this is after the same-sex marriage opinion in 2015. I mean, they just had won that big battle in front of the Supreme Court, and they just had to have something else to do. And this was the next thing. And because their worldview, the progressive worldview, isn't grounded in any objective truth at all, they just kind of have to move on to, you know, destroy the next thing in our society mm -hmm. instead of, of trying to transform it. And that's gender identity. And so all of a sudden, people start to talk about it as if they actually accept it. You know, someone comes along and says, uh, well, you know, I, I'm female and, you know, well, obviously, Caitlyn Jenner is, uh, Jenner is the best example of that. Right. And then all of a sudden, the, the secular progressive left actually begins to parrot that. We knew it wasn't going to take long before they started to actually move into the realm of mandatory acceptance. Right. And then insisting everyone else accept what we were told we had to tolerate to begin with. Right. And, and that is where things get really dangerous. And actually, that's really at the heart of uh, the motivation for me writing the article. That was a professor, uh, Lisa McLeod, who had written me the, the chair of the Department of Philosophy at, at Guilford College. I mean, this isn't just some part-time, untenured quack there. This is the head of the entire philosophy department uh, was writing me and saying that my position was unsupportable and unworthy of an academic. Well, let me translate that. What she's saying is that everyone who wants to teach in higher education now has to accept uh, this whole idea uh, that uh, gender identity disorder really isn't a disorder. It's just another form of diversity that we all have to celebrate. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360K PXQ. I'm Erin Brownback, filling in for Tom Brown, and we are talking with Mike Adams, who has written the article, My Philosophy on Mental Illness, talking about gender identity disorder, gender confusion. And, you know, Mike, uh, the American Psychological Association, as you know, um, they had classified uh, gender identity disorder as a disorder and then declassified it. When did that happen? Oh, that was uh, in the last year or so. Actually, I have uh, I have a background in psychology. I got my master's in psychology, but that was way back in the 1980s, uh, actually early 1990s. And uh, I, I don't really keep up with all of the dramatic changes in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Uh, but I do know that this has been a fairly recent change. It was after the same-sex marriage uh, opinion, obviously, and uh, I also know that it was not motivated by any change in the science. Uh, it was right. political. Uh, when they announced uh, their declassification of homosexuality as an emotional disorder uh, back in 1973, uh, there was no pretense that it was based upon any new information from a scientific standpoint. It was simply a result of political pressure. You know, uh, I think it's important for everybody listening to know that recently the American Psychological Association has also declassified pedophilia as a disorder. And they um, have used the same arguments that have been used about homosexuality, that um, we were just they were just born this way. Um, they're unlikely to change. They were just born attracted to children. So it's interesting, as I work on messaging the family, to see what a big role and impact the um, the medical community has on our, on defining our perception of family. Oh, it, it's fascinating. You know, way way back in 2011 when we started our LGBTQIA office right. uh, on our campus. If you can keep up with all of that alphabet soup of diversity, good luck to you. But when we developed that on, on campus, I, I actually wrote, the director of the center and said, what are you going to do? What are you going to promote? And I directly asked her the question, uh, you know, are you going to uh, basically promote uh, the transgendered lifestyle? And then yes. I gave the obvious follow-up question, will you promote pedophilia? And she says, oh, of course not. We would never do that because the APA says that that's right, a disorder. Right, right. Hey, you're listening to Coin and Neon, Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Aaron Brownback filling in for Tom Brown. Welcome back. This is Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Erin Brownback filling in for Tom Brown, and we have been talking with Mike Adams, who is an active messenger of the pro-family movement, the goodness of God's design for the family. We've been talking about uh, the gender confusion issue, and Mike, you have had personal experience with how uh, this has impacted not only you know your life, but your career and people who have spoken against you and come against you because you've taken the position that God has designed gender to be uh, specific for each individual and that that's not really up for grabs, up for debate. Tell us a little bit about your personal experience with that. Well, I had a, a, a very good experience early on as an academic hired in 1993 uh, here at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. And then uh, later on, I, I had an experience when I was in prison in South America. Let me explain, as a visitor, not as a <laughs> felon. Thank you. Uh, I actually had a, 
I was had been an atheist previously and a political leftist, and I had a a, a religious conversion, a part one that occurred down there, and then part two later on when I was on death row in Texas. Uh, again, visiting on death <laughs> row in Texas, um, I actually started a conversation with a, a prisoner there that actually led to me reading the Bible and converting to Christianity, and all of that happened uh, around 2000. And then later on, when I went up for a, a promotion to full professor, after my views had changed on things, and I sort of uh, became an outspoken individual speaking out against phony diversity in higher education uh, and the lack of intellectual diversity in higher education, I actually was denied a, a promotion. And it was really interesting when I sued uh, and was represented by the ADF. It was fascinating how, when we went through the process of e-discovery, how many of these activist groups out there were actually monitoring the political columns that I've written now for 14 years for townhall.com and just writing in mass to the university and demanding that they do things to me. And lo and behold, uh, as I mentioned in the previous segment, we actually found out that they had launched secret investigations without me knowing it. And, and this of is that your nature. school that launched these or these, these groups that were watching? Uh, I'm sorry? Who was it that launched these secret investigations? This was the school that you were? Oh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Really? The university. I mean, uh, believe it or not, the chancellor, in response to the Gender Mutiny Collective, actually called the department chair and said, you know, you need to monitor his classroom and find out if he's giving transphobic lectures. Wow. So and- you, you speak out saying you don't believe that that transgenderism is something that should be treated by mutilating a person's body or chemically altering their body or, or right, what, and, right. and then they come against you right. and you're denied a promotion. Right. And then what happens? So, and you, so you said you talked with Alliance Defending Freedom. Well, fortunately they had just started the Center for Academic Freedom about eight months before the denial of promotion. And I just happened to be working together with David French on campus cases and, uh, you know, fighting against cam- campus speech codes and things of that nature. And so I, I had a friend there who was willing to represent me, and uh, we had to fight the motion to dismiss and ultimately go through this process of, of e-discovery. And it was just a treasure trove. And um, ultimately, after we fought a very long legal battle to decide whether my columns were actually protected by the Constitution or whether they were official duties, we actually won a jury trial. Uh, we actually won the right to have one. And uh, after a three-day trial, we we won easily. It didn't even take the jury uh, two hours to figure out that uh, the university has become a very strange place, and largely because of the worldview it's embracing. And so what what did you win ultimately in that case? Well, I, I won uh, some back pay there, several years of back pay, uh, which was good, which I, I spent at Bass Pro Shop, but that's another, that's <laughs> another segment altogether. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that more than anything, we won an important legal victory concerning the constitutional rights of uh, professors who decide that they're going to be pundits. And so they and, appointed you to be a full professor? Yes, yes. At that uh, point? The denial, indeed, was reversed, and more importantly, $710,000 in legal fees to the Alliance Defending Freedom, which sent a message to other universities that they had better respect the First Amendment. So it was a fantastic victory. That's really important for people who are listening, because I think a lot of people have just felt like they're cowering under the scrutiny of those who would promote a sexually left agenda, saying, you know, you cannot speak out against any, um, you know, ulterior approach or, you know, alternate approach to sexuality. 
And if you do, then you're prejudiced, you're a bigot, you're, you know, all sorts of other ugly and hateful things. And so I think it's important for people to hear that you spoke out, you stood up, and you won. You won decisively. Oh, yes. Oh, we, we won very decisively, not just in the legal realm, but also uh, in the factual realm as well. Uh, I was finally in front of a jury of my peers, just average, ordinary pers- uh, persons uh, on the street, and we won easily. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Mike Adams, who is an author and a writer for townhall.com, and uh, you're listening to Quinnia 1360 KPXQ. Mike, um, so you, you said um, in our first segment that um, the gender issue was kind of like the abortion issue, or it tied together there. And I know for me, as I work on messaging the pro-family movement, there are five issues that I really think about as a continuum. Gender, marriage, sex, life, and parenting, and how the deconstruction of those things really since the sexual revolution has deconstructed the family and the fabric of society. So help our listeners understand what is it about thinking that you're a man when you're a woman that ties into wanting to abort a child? Like, those things seem kind of different. How do you tie them together in your mind? Well, first of all, they're both examples of anti-science fundamentalism. I mean, people will say that if you're pro-life, that that raises an issue of separation of church and state, that you're attempting to impose your religious views uh, upon the larger society. And that's not true. The science of embryology shows that the unborn is, is a distinct living and whole human being from the very point of conception. And it's not just that most embryologists say that, it's that all of them, there's an absolute scientific consensus there. So to deny that the unborn is in fact human is to engage in anti-science fundamentalism. Well, that's obviously at play here. Uh, to, To say that gender is simply socially constructed is to deny certain biological facts about differences between men and women. So obviously there is a denial of science at the most basic level in both cases, but what ties them together from a motivational standpoint? Well, they both advance sexual liberty. Let's face it, Uh, expanding the number of different victim groups that are associated with the LGBT movement uh, helps them to gain political power because we're talking about a very small segment of the population. And that's always been what the pro-life movement is all about. I mean, people can't really possibly actually believe that the unborn uh, is not a human, but sometimes they will remain willfully blind. And the reason they do that is because it allows them to pursue sexual liberty interests. The Supreme Court said as much in a concurring opinion in, in 1992 in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I will repeat it again when they said at the heart of liberty is the ability to define life and the meaning of the universe and the meaning of existence. What Wasn't that there mean? something similar also in the Obergefell decision, a same-sex uh, marriage decision, that now now people would be able to love who they wanted and not grow old alone? I know I'm butchering it, but do you, do oh, you no, know what I'm— Oh, no, that's the end of it. It's the, it's the same person. It's, it's Justice Kennedy saying exactly the same thing at the end. And that's not constitutional law. That's just bad poetry. <laughs> I like that. I like that. You're right. And, you know, something that I have found when I have been working on the message around the life issue is that for um, a very progressive mindset, it seems like there is um, a commitment to human justice in a lot of ways. 
And then there's a commitment to sexual liberty. But when those two things come head to head, which is what happens in the issue of abortion, sexual liberty wins every time. And the prenatal child gets thrown under the bus every single time. That's that, what it's all about. Yeah, the sexual liberty issue just just seems to trump everything else. Um, so, all right, so you, um, you do pro-life work and... You've worked on the gender issue. Are there, are there other areas that when people go on to townhall.com, they'll be able to read in this, you know, this family arena um, of messages that you're putting out? Well, I also talk a lot about the, the free speech issue generally. So much of my work, as a matter of fact, most of the speeches that I give on campuses and at churches deal with the First Amendment uh, because ultimately we've got to preserve uh, the right to freedom of speech and religious liberty if we're actually going to protect those other interests as well. Which you've experienced personally, having stood up for some of these issues and seeing how people have tried to push against you um, and against your free speech. Okay, Mike, tell us one more thing. I'm so interested. I always like to ask people about their personal family stories since we're talking about family messaging. You mentioned that you grew up an atheist. Tell us just a little bit about your family and your background. Well, I was actually baptized uh, as a child around the age of 10 and then fell away in college. That's one of the reasons I'm so passionate uh, about the issue of indoctrination on college campuses. But I was away from the church for 17 years and finally came back. Not surprising, I've been all over the map because I was raised by an atheist uh, father and a fundamentalist mother. Uh, But he recently passed away, died of brain cancer in November, uh, converted before he died. And what's amazing is that he was married... Uh, to my mother for 62 years. And people often ask that question, you know, how could it be the case that a fundamentalist and an atheist could be married that long? Well, the fact of the matter is that uh, my dad, without acknowledging the lawgiver, always acknowledged the moral law. And so I grew up around a very strongly pro-family environment, even though my dad was an atheist. He he, he thought that divorce was uh, an absolute moral wrong. It was an evil and that was just instilled uh, in me uh, from the time I was a small child. Mm. It sounds like God was drawing him close, even though he resisted almost until the end. Yes, indeed. Well, I like to send people who are listening to do something practical because we all want to see change. It all really matters. And so, Mike, I had asked you, what can people do? And you shared just one of the greatest calls to action, most specific. You said, have them find my philosophy on mental illness on townhall.com. Share it with, what, 10 of their friends? Is that what you told me? Yes. Yeah, send it to your pastor and post it on 10 friends, uh, hopefully those that go to your church, and start a discussion in the church because the problem with the church these days is that it's responding to the culture and not influencing the culture. So that's make what sure we those need conversations to be doing. happen there. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I have had a wonderful time talking with Mike Adams. You can reach me at AaronBrownback.com or on Facebook, and be sure to tune in Monday through Thursday. I'm sorry, Monday through Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. We'll see you next time. This is Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I'm Erin Brownback filling in for Tom Brown, and we have had a great show today talking with Mike Adams and Mark Anthony about gender issues, um, about masculinity and femininity, and somehow the confusion um, between those two, how that has arisen, this sort of trans 
gender push that we've seen. And it reminds me, both of these guests have said that they've experienced personal pushback and suffering for standing up for the goodness of God's design for the family, which reminds me that the rise and fall of a nation, as it's studied historically, typically looks like this. Um, Nations often start in bondage, and then there are acts of great faith. And with uh, faith comes acts of courage. And courage leads to um, uh, courage leads to um, abundance, and um, we peak as a nation at abundance. We go downhill from there. Abundance leads to selfishness, which leads to tolerance. And another word for tolerance is apathy. And apathy leads to anarchy. And anarchy leads to dictatorship. And the reason I go through that is because, you know, we are at a time where we've been told you must tolerate. And when you tolerate everything, you, uh, you can't say that anything is wrong. And that's where, that's where the anarchy comes in. So we all need to be standing for the truth. And um, we know that there's a price to pay. Um, but we also know that there is a great reward. And as we saw with Mike Adams' story, he stood up. And he decisively won um, his his uh, court case. And um, we just need to have hope and we need to have courage and we need to act on that. I'm so glad that you could be with us today. Thanks for listening to Koinonia on Faith Talk 1360 KPXQ. I've had a great time being with you. I'm Erin Brownback. You can find me at www.erinbrownback.com on Facebook or on Twitter at ebrownback. And be sure to tune in Monday through Friday from 2 to 3 p.m. for Koinonia. We will talk with you next time.